You guys can have a seat. If you have your Bibles, open to Haggai chapter 2. We're going to be in the book of Haggai this morning in the Old Testament. Haggai is probably not the most frequently referred to book for you, so there is no shame in using your table of contents. I had to as well earlier this morning, so to find Haggai. I'll tell you guys, as you're looking for Haggai, as we get into this stretch on the heels of Thanksgiving, this is probably for myself one of my favorite times of the entire year. This little holiday run from Halloween all the way up to Christmas for me. The weather is amazing. The football is typically pretty good. Uh, the holidays are fantastic. And it's just a really fun time as a family. It's a fun time of year. And, and yet in the midst of this stretch year after year, there's been one thing that I've begun to be a little bit find peculiar. And that in this holiday run from Halloween to Christmas, right over Thanksgiving, which honestly for us as a family, sometimes we have a tendency to skip right over. We might have had our Christmas tree up almost two weeks ago. Um, We might have already gone through at least one watching of the elf. That's just kind of where our family is right now. Uh, But in the midst of this holiday stretch, I've often thought to myself, there are all these holidays seem to have goblins and villains except for Thanksgiving. (laughs) Halloween, clearly, with all the ghosts and scary masks and whatnot, get to Christmas and you have the Scrooge and you have the Grinch, but Thanksgiving has always felt to me a little bit peculiar because there seems to be no clear villain of Thanksgiving. There's no character, there's no Dr. Seuss character, there's no one who's out to try to ruin Thanksgiving unless you're a Cowboys fan and it's the LA Chargers and then everything went to pot on Thursday, all right? But nonetheless, there's no clear villain of Thanksgiving. There's no one that's there to undermine the spirit of Thanksgiving. There's no one that's looking to ruin your Thanksgiving day, some kind of Dr. Seuss character. There never seems to be anyone to me that I've noticed. Maybe you've come to mind and think of someone immediately. But what I want to do this morning is I want to, in the midst of Haggai chapter 2, is I want to unmask for you what I think is the villain of Thanksgiving, all right? So it's a little bit of a stretch. Hang with me, all right? But in chapter 2, I think we're going to see the villain of Thanksgiving unmasked. That there's a normal human tendency every single one of us has that frankly we are so familiar with it that we no longer think it's dangerous at all. But I want to submit to you this morning that there is this one human natural tendency that every single one of us has that poses as great of a threat to our ability to give thanks and maintain contentment in our life. And yet when we unmask it, it's not going to be scary to you at all. In fact, it's something that you and I do every single day of our life. It's something that I already did this morning, even thinking about the sermon. I didn't even think about it as I made a joke. But it's something that you and I do all the time. And so we're absolutely familiar with it, and yet we don't think anything about it. And yet it absolutely has the greatest ability for us to undermine our ability to give thanks and our capacity for gratitude. And so what I want to do in Haggai 2 this morning for us is I want to identify and unmask this villain I want to show you how it operates in its normal, natural habitat, and then I want to show us how we defeat it. That's where we're going to head this morning, Haggai chapter 2. But Haggai is probably not the most familiar book of the Bible for you, so let me give you guys a little bit of historical context to set the stage. In 586 BC, if you know anything about Old Testament history, uh, the Babylonian kingdom came and defeated the southern kingdom of Judah and their foreign policy at the time was to take conquered people and deport them and distribute them across neighboring areas so that they would be easier to govern and easier to rule. So the Babylonians came in and they conquered the southern kingdom of Judah and deported them everywhere. And about 46 years later in 540 BC, the Persians come in and they conquer the Babylonians and they have a different foreign policy that allows conquered peoples to return to their land and to maintain their culture, maintain their history and their values. And so the Persians come in, they defeat the Babylonians and the Persian king, King Cyrus, who I'm going to show you guys here in a quote in a minute, uh, is going to allow a select group of Israelites, whoever would like to return, to return back to Jerusalem 46, 50 years later and to rebuild the temple that had been destroyed. 
Ezra chapter 1 tells us this in terms of history. It says, thus says the Cyrus king of Persia, a pagan king. He says, the Lord, the God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. And whoever there is among you of all of his people, may his God be with him. Let him go to Jerusalem, which is in Judah and rebuild the house of the Lord. Every survivor at whatever place he may live, let the men of that place support him with silver and gold, with goods and cattle together with a free will offering for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. Ezra chapter one, this is a pretty huge historical moment. You have a pagan king that said, hey, I would allow, I would love for the people of God, the nation of Israel to return back to their land and to rebuild their prized and precious temple. In fact, I feel so called and so impacted by this that I'm going to decree it to be so. And I'm going to instruct all the peoples of the land as they travel to provide goods, provide supplies for their trip, safe passage, but also goods for the building of the temple itself. This decree in Ezra 1 is a huge moment for a pagan king to recognize the God of heaven and to allow the people of God to return back to the land that he had given them and to rebuild the temple so they can reinstitute worship. It's a huge moment in Ezra 1. We find out a few chapters later in Ezra 3 that a a huge remnant of people returned back to the promised land, commissioned and desirous to build the temple. In fact, it's about 46 or 50 years that have gone by. So this deported people, really, they've rebuilt life. They've rebuilt life in such a way that, frankly, staying probably where they were might have been more comfortable to them in some ways. But a select group of individuals, uh, many of which will return back to Israel to rebuild the temple. And we find in Ezra 3 that they get off to a fantastic start in rebuilding the temple. Ezra 3 verses 3 and 4. So they set up the altar on its foundation for they were terrified because of the peoples of the land. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord. Burnt offerings morning and evening. They celebrated the feast of booze as it is written. And they offered the fixed number of burnt offerings daily. So as these people return back to the promised land in the first year that they're there, they have an amazing start. They've they've taken the cost and the sacrifice to relocate back to the land. And in the first year that they're there, they've actually rebuilt the altar and the sacrifice and the foundation of the temple. Year one, check, great start. (laughs) They're scared of the peoples around. And so they've come back and they've reinstituted the law. They're sacrificing again. They're worshiping the God of Israel Amazing start for this people that have returned to the land. But in Haggai, God shows up and speaks to the nation of Israel through the prophet Haggai. And this occurs 16 years after Ezra 3. And notice what happens in Haggai 1. I'll put it up here for you guys in a minute. It says this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, The people says the time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. So apparently in Haggai 1, what we find out is that in Ezra 3, the foundation of the temple was laid. But according to Haggai 1, that occurs 16 years after the foundation was laid, the, stop, the temple work has completely stopped. They've done nothing on it whatsoever. In fact, I love how God refers to them, says this people says, he doesn't even own them as my people. And this is a little bit of what you might have felt like if you're a kid and your parents are talking about you and one parent says this child of yours speaking to your other parent because they don't want to own you. All right. You ever had that moment? Uh, not that I ever do that myself, but it's what God does. He doesn't say my people. He says, hey, this people, I'm going to I'm going to step in distance myself from them. This is what they say. The time has not come to rebuild the temple. But that's the reason why they returned to the land to begin with anyways, was to rebuild the temple. But notice what they've done in the meantime of these 16 years that have transpired. Then the war of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet saying, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? Uh, the book of Haggai is going to have a series of rhetorical questions. We're going to look at three of them in great detail this morning. 
But this first rhetorical question in Haggai 1 makes it really clear that here's what had happened to the nation of Israel and those that had returned to the promised land to rebuild the temple. They returned, and in the first year they laid the foundation, and it was excellent. But then the next next 16 years went by, and they did absolutely zero work on the temple. Instead of building the temple, what did they actually end up building? Their own homes, right? And building their own homes over 16 years is not a horrible pattern because you've got to have somewhere to live. But what Haggai says, or what the question says, is that is it time for you to dwell in your paneled houses? And what the prophet Haggai is hitting for the nation of Israel is it's not just that they had completed their house while the temple of the Lord had remained desolate, but they had not only completed their houses, but they had completed them to such a degree that they were now luxuriant. That not every house in the ancient Near East had paneled houses. That paneling was an actual form of the very last thing one might do to a home. And it was a sign of luxury, a sign of extravagance. Some commentators will even say that the way that they paneled their houses with the very cedars, uh, the very uh, tools and wood that they wanted to use for the temple, they ended up rerouting and redeploying in the building of their own homes. Sixteen years after the foundation is laid, God sends the prophet Haggai to speak to the nation of Israel, and it's not one of those good conversation moments, right? It's one of those times where someone says, hey, we need to talk, and you know trouble is brewing. That's what Haggai chapter 1 is. God rises up the prophet Haggai to go speak to the nation because over the last 16 years, they've done nothing on the temple of the Lord. Meanwhile, the house of their own homes has, is now not just completed, but it's absolutely luxurious and extravagant. And God comes to the nation and says, what's the deal? We got a priority problem. We got a materialism problem. We're not at all prioritizing the things that are significant and eternal. And so he says, what's the deal? At the end of chapter one, if you want to turn there, verses 14 or 15, or I'll put it back up on the screen as well. But thankfully, the nation of Israel repents according to verses 14 and 15. So the Lord served the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and they worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month. Chapter 1 of the book of Haggai ends with the nation of Israel responding to the convicting message and question that God raised up Haggai to give them. And they say, you, what? you know what? It is, God, you were right. <laughs> It it is no longer time for us to dwell in our comfort and in our materialism, but it's now time to move towards the goals that you called us toward and to rebuild a temple so that we can reinstitute worship and sacrifice to you. So they rise up, they repent, they say, God, forgive us, and they respond back in faithful obedience to begin to rebuild the temple. But then something happens, and in chapter 2, you'll find here, chapter 1 ends on the 24th day of the 6th month, but if you have your uh, scripture open, I want you guys guys to notice chapter 2, verse 1. On the 21st of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Notice chapter 1 ends on the 24th day of the sixth month, and chapter 2 starts on the 21st of the seventh month, meaning four weeks have transpired. And God feels a need to to respond back and speak to them again. So what is it exactly that unfolds in the uh, immediate aftermath of them beginning to rebuild and rework on the temple? That's what we're going to find here in chapter 2, verses 1 and on. Notice. On the 21st of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, uh, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, and what you're going to get here in the next few verses is three rhetorical questions, because apparently Haggai likes rhetorical questions. All right, Notice what he says. Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? Question one, question two are setups for the piercing question that comes with question three when he says this. And does it seem to you like nothing in comparison? 
the nation of Israel, many of them had returned, wanted to rebuild the temple. And in year one, they laid the foundation of the temple and it's all great, all good. <laughs> 16 years transpire later and they do no work on the temple because they want to set up their own homes. God comes to them and says, hey, we have a priority problem. They respond and they obey and they begin to rebuild the temple again. But now something happens over the next four weeks as they're reworking on the temple yet again. God recognizes it's significant and he moves towards them quickly. What is the issue? I think question one and question two set up question three. And notice again what he says in question three. Does it seem to you like nothing now in comparison? Here's the villain that's unmasked as we think about Thanksgiving. It's a natural human tendency to compare. Every single one of us typically looks to the left of us and we look to the right of us and we wonder how we stack up and how we measure up. And I think what Haggai chapter 2 is going to do for us is going to warn us that that absolutely natural human tendency is deadly in our lives. In fact, I love what Mark Twain says, says it this way. He says uh, that comparison is the death of joy. Pastor Andy Stanley says it like this, that as you and I look to the left and we look to the right, wondering how we measure up and how we stack up as we compare our lives, our possessions, our personality, our stuff with everyone else, that we live in the land of Ur. That every single one of us, as we look left and as we look right, we want to be richer, we want to be better, we want to be faster, we want to be stronger, we want to be skinnier, we want to be Ur. We want to be more than whatever it is I see to my left or I see to my right. And it absolutely undermines the very ability that you and I have to give thanks in our life and the capacity that we have for gratitude. And what is an absolutely normal human tendency as we look in the left and we look to the right. It's interesting. I, I think for many of us, that starts off in middle school. <laughs> for some of us that are in youth here in elementary school, I remember somewhere late elementary school, it was in middle school that I woke up and I realized what popularity was. And I realized, oh no, <laughs> I'm on the outside of that circle, Right. As I was looking left and right, I realized, oh, I, I, apparently I don't seem to measure up to some standard that exists. And then it moves into dating and it moves into marriage where you're looking for someone who's er than you, right? Who's richer, who's prettier, who's more successful than you. And then for some of us that are parents, we don't want to admit this, uh, but then we get to our kids and honestly, as we look to the left and the right of our kids, we hope that they are better, smarter, faster, stronger than your kids, right? If we're honest. We do. That it, it, it plagues every single one of us, every stage of our life, and every realm of our life. That we have a tendency to look left and to look right and to compare ourselves, our possessions, our personality to the people that are to the left and the right of us. And what I want to submit to you guys this morning is that that absolutely normal human tendency is probably no greater threat to our capacity to give thanks and our ability to express gratitude than maybe anything else in our life. But what I find really fascinating as we look at this section too is that God waited 16 years to address these people's materialism and he waits four weeks to address their tendency to compare. He, he let them go 16 years in not building the temple as they built their houses and as they leaned into materialism and luxury and procrastination and he said not a word, apparently. At least that we have recorded. 16 years go by and now they begin to rebuild and begin to resume work on the temple. And they're four weeks into what seems like a tendency that's natural to comparison. And he speaks up yet again, right? It strikes me as odd. It strikes me as fascinating. Why does God allow 16 years to go by of materialism, but he only allows four weeks to go by of comparison without speaking to it? 
Could it be that that natural human tendency to compare that every single one of us experiences as we look left and as we look right absolutely might be more dangerous in our lives than materialism, luxury? Could it actually be that that natural human tendency to compare actually drives our materialism and is the foundation upon which a lot of other issues and problems rest? I think so. Four weeks go by and God's going to lean into that and he's going to speak into that for the nation of Israel because it absolutely is dangerous in their lives and in our lives. And what I want to do is I want to take these three questions for you guys, these three rhetorical questions, and I want to show you exactly how comparison operates and I want to analyze it and I want to break it down so that you can see actually how it works and why it's dangerous in our life. I want to show you how comparison operates in its natural habitat, if you will. Now that we see it, and these three questions, I think, provide clues, each one of them, for us as to how comparison operates. So notice verse, uh, uh, verse 3 again. Notice the first question. He says, who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? As God comes to the prophet Haggai, who is he addressing this first question to primarily in the nation of Israel's uh, composition? I think he's primarily addressing this to the leadership of the nation, those that were the oldest in the nation. Why is that significant to us? I think it's simply significant for this reason. That comparison infects every single person, every single one of us. The first question comes right at the leadership of the nation, those that would have actually been alive, those whose eyes actually would have been able to see the first temple before it was destroyed to make a comparison to this current temple. And the point is this, that comparison impacts every single one of us. It impacted the nation of Israel and its very leadership, at the core of its leadership, and the very elders that they had all the way down. That it impacts every single one of us. But not just that it impacts every single one of us, but I think as you look left and right, we typically have two responses in extremes. That sometimes we look left and we look right, and as we feel like with what we see, we often, for many of us, feel like we just don't measure up. As I look left, as I look right, I I don't feel like I measure up. I feel like I'm on the outside of a circle. I feel like I've not made it. I've not arrived. I'm not okay for some reason. And for many of us that land there, maybe not in every arena of our life, but in many, the reality is then our experience becomes a constant chase up and a constant climb up to meet some standard that we have to arrive at. For some of us, it's on the other extreme that we do look left and we look right and There may be some areas, or for some of us, it may be in a lot of areas that we look left and right and we think, no, no, I've made it. I'm good. (laughs) And for us, it's not a constant chase up, but it's a constant condescension down as we look at everybody else. That as we compare looking left and right, the results of it are not good either way it goes, right? Of either a need to chase to arrive at something that frankly doesn't matter, or condescension and a pride as we look down at everybody else thinking we've made it and they haven't. The comparison typically never takes us to a good place, though it impacts every single one of us. Second thing I want you guys to see about comparison is that it evaluates by an external standard. Notice again the question, who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? The point is, as they're looking at the temple that they're trying to rebuild, they're thinking back to what they'd seen in the past and they're making a comparison between them because comparison always evaluates by an external standard that someone handed to you. The question is, is that the right standard? Was that how they were supposed to look at the temple project that God had called them to? Were they supposed to compare it based on that past standard? I don't think they were. And yet we always compare ourselves as we look left and right upon some standard that we've received that we never question at times. 
Those standards are all over the place. For some of us, it's uh, personality-driven. We look left and right, and we wish we were like them or like her. For some of us, it's possessions-driven. We wish we had what they have. For some of us, it's proficiency-driven, because I have to have all three Ps, because I'm a preacher. We have to literate, all right? So it's a little bit of a harder one, all right? But I wish I could do what they can do. I wish I had the abilities, the gifts, the skills that they had, but I don't. So I compare myself. But who said you had to? And who said it mattered for you to have what they have or to do what they do or to be like what they're like? Personality is typically a driven complex to get us approval. Possessions is typically driven to get us significance. And proficiency is simply driven to get us success. But why does that matter? And who told us that those things were important? One of the trends and one of the things I've seen Blake preaching on a lot in the last couple of years is as we think about external standards that we have to measure up against, the reality is often, especially with the rise of social media, we're measuring ourselves against something that frankly is fake. It's not even real. I, I love this quote uh, from Stephen Furtick. He says this, the reason we struggle with insecurity for so many of us, this is my insecurity through much of middle school and high school, is that we compare our behind the scenes life with everyone else's highlight reel, Right? Over the next few weeks, something that's going to happen for most of us as we go to the mailbox is going to be an inordinate amount of Christmas cards that start arriving in our uh, mailbox, right? For those of you who've already sent yours out, shame on you for being overachievers. It's just wrong for the rest of us. <laughs> Not that I'm comparing or anything, right? Um, but what happens in those moments, right? You get this perfect picture, right? Blake, I remember last year showed a picture of their Christmas card and then another picture of their whole crew that wasn't the one they sent out, right? And like kids are going crazy. Mom and dad are frustrated. Someone's yelling at someone, maybe at everybody, right? It's just, it's a nightmare, right? Which for you kids that are here, uh, a little secret for you guys as uh, your parents present a united front to do the Christmas card photo shoot, I just want you to know your dad hates it as much as you do, okay? Uh, there, there typically is no more moment that I more likely could act like my five-year-old son than when we're doing a photo shoot because I am absolutely miserable, all right? And for you guys that are photographers, I apologize that I'm dogging on a part of your business, all right? But it, it is usually not a pleasant experience, right? I'm upset that I'm getting dressed up. I'm upset that we have to kind of keep it all together, right? The kids aren't having fun. No one's having fun. But of course, what gets created at the end of it is a great photo and a great memory that looks nothing like the last 30 minutes, right? <laughs> That's what happens, Right? It's not just what we do with Christmas cards. It's not just what we do with social media that the entirety of what we often think about as we look left and we look right on someone's life isn't even real, right? That we're comparing our lives to their highlight reels, not toward the tape that's running 24-7. And yet we seem to continue into this pattern over and over and over again, right? I want you guys to see a couple other things that emerge, I think, from the second question how comparison operates. Let me dive a little bit deeper with you guys. And notice the second question. Notice what God says to the prophet Haggai. He says this. He says, um, who's left among you who saw the temple in its former glory and how do you see it now? There's two things I want you to see about how comparison operates and these are absolutely significant and why they're so dangerous. Comparison doesn't just operate by an external standard, but here's the standard specifically and how it makes its evaluation. It operates by sight and not by faith. The way that comparison always operates in our life, as we look left and as we look right, is always by based on what we can see, not by faith that would guide us as we live and as we look at our lives, as we look at ourselves. Comparison quiets the voice of faith and exalts the voice of observation and what we can see. Let me drive it on a little bit further that comparison evaluates the present and not the future. 
Notice he says, and how do you see it now? That as you and I look left and as we look right in the land of Ur, wanting to be richer, faster, stronger, smarter, skinnier, we always evaluate based on what we see and we always evaluate in the present with no sense of the future. Why is that significant? Without faith, it's impossible to please God, right? Faith is the conviction of things unseen. So if we're called to walk by faith, then comparison is antithetical to walk by faith. Because comparison operates only as a walk and evaluation by what we see. And it's only what we see in the present because we can't see in the future, which means there's no place for faith and no room for what God can ultimately do beyond what we see. Think about this. We're going to see this as the passage ends. God's going to pull the curtain back from the nation of Israel. He's going to let them see into the future as to what he's going to do with this temple that they think is not very significant right now. I'm going to show it to you guys in a few minutes here, but what he's going to say is, what I'm going to do with this temple that you think is small and insignificant compared to what you've seen in the past is so much greater than anything the prior temple ever saw. And the point is this, that when you and I operate by comparison, all we see is what we can see right now that's right in front of us. And there's no room for faith in the belief that God can do something beyond what we can see and prove right now. Which means the only evaluation we make is on the current chapter that's staring us right in the face. And there's no room for the the following chapters of the story that God's still writing that we can't see right now. That's why comparison is so deadly. We stack ourselves up looking left and looking right against a standard that no one actually told us was that significant. We just inherited and believed and never questioned. And there's no room for faith, no room for what God can ultimately do beyond what we can see. Lastly, and here's where I think it gets this most significant. Look at question three. This is where he drives it home for him. He says this, And does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? The last thing I want you guys to see is that comparison evaluates things as all or nothing. That based on an external standard that we've received and never questioned, based on what we can see with no sense of the future by faith, when we evaluate based on comparison, it's usually all or nothing. Let me illustrate by sports, right? A team kicks a winning field goal the very last second of a game, and what do we say on the backside the next day? The quarterback is greatest of all time, and the coach is absolutely brilliant to put his team in that position, right? But let's say the field goal kicker misses the kick and it glances off the goalpost. What do we say the next morning? The coach is absolute moron, right? Like, he has no idea how to lead his team. The quarterbacks, uh, like, can't, can't, can't be clutch at all. We just go to either extreme in sports, right? It's all or it's nothing. The coach should be fired today. Or we should be given a raise tomorrow based on what happened with that one last field goal kick in the last second of the game, right? In sports, we laugh at that. We recognize it, but we play into it all the time. And it's not so funny, though, when we do that with our own selves and our own lives, right? When we look left and we look right and we compare the evaluation that we typically make of ourselves, of our life, of our possessions, is that it's all or nothing. And then it's not so funny. Uh, Interesting quote from the Clinical Psychology Review that says this, that distorted views of self may arise and be maintained by several components of the social comparison process. Which means when you and I look left and right socially, the result is that we get a distorted view of who we are. And it may constitute a predisposition to chronic negative self-evaluations. That when you and I live in the land of Ur, looking left and looking right, we typically are almost always going to move in the negative direction. Which means we're going to have a distorted view of self and we're going to have a negative view of self as well. 
And preliminary evidence even goes further to suggest that depressed individuals and individuals thought to be at an increased risk for developing depressive symptoms may exhibit differences along these social comparison dimensions. The natural human tendency to compare that we all experience in our lives is something that we don't even think about anymore. But what I want you to see is that it's absolutely dangerous in our lives. As we think about our family, as we think about our own selves in a school system or in a workplace, that you and I fall into this all the time and it's absolutely dangerous. Not just how we think about ourselves, but how we speak and how we move in life. And if comparison often leads us to an evaluation of things as an all or nothing, then your nothing statements often give away and are a clue to your tendency and your activity of comparison. Let me illustrate. How many of you have walked into your closet and said, I have nothing to wear, right? I'm going to say your spouse, whose gender will remain nameless, right, uh, typically comes beside you and says, how can you say you have nothing to wear when the closet is absolutely full, right? Like there's nowhere to put another article of clothing in here. What's the issue? Is the issue your closet and whether it has anything in it? No. The issue is your closet in measure in comparison to someone else's closet, correct? Or how about you walk into a workplace and you say to a coworker, you say to your spouse as you come home, I make nothing in this place. You actually probably get a pretty decent paycheck, but the issue is that somewhere along the way, you compared yourself to someone else in the workplace that you think makes more than you, and therefore you think you make now nothing, right? The issue isn't in the paycheck. The issue is in your comparison and where it took you. For some of you, you may say, I feel like I have no free time. And yet you just Netflix binge something, I don't know how long, yesterday, right? The issue is maybe actually more your comparison to your roommate, especially if it's a college student who has way fewer hours than you, who has way more free time than you. And yet your statement gives away your tendency to compare. Ultimately, this lands and devolves into a place that we ultimately end up saying something like this. I'm a nothing and I'm a nobody. Ever felt that way? Again, it's a clue to your tendency that is absolutely normal to compare because somebody else feels like everything to you and you feel like nothing. Right? Every single one of us do it all the time. And yet, despite its familiarity to us, I want to wake you guys up as to its danger because it absolutely can remove our contentment and our gratitude which is the point I've been trying to try to drive to this whole morning. That comparison steals our contentment and it steals our gratitude. The question is, what do we do with it? Hopefully the weight is not completely buried you alive yet, but the question is, what do we do, right? If we all face this, no matter our age, then what do we do with it? I want you guys to notice where he goes with two commands that start in verse 4. Notice what he says, but now take courage, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. We're going to kind of pull this thing on an uphill, all right? So hang with me, all right? Uh, he says, but now take courage, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Take courage also, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and all of you people of the land, take courage, declares the Lord, and work. He's going to give them two, two commands here. They're going to be on a pathway toward how we get out and away from this tendency to compare. The first is he's going to recognize, God does, I think, that comparison is a gut punch to our soul that takes us down on the mat. And what he's going to say is, get up off the mat. (laughs) Be encouraged. Let your spirits be lifted. Get up. And he's going to give us the reason why they ought to be lifted up. But for some of us, that's maybe where you and I are, are right now in the midst of comparison that has just completely trapped us and buried us. And that for you this morning, that that verse is incredibly encouraging you to say, hey, it's time to stop comparing and it's time to get up off the mat and stop looking left and right and getting beat up by that process. Get up. 
One of the things I love most about my boy, who's five, is he has an unbridled confidence in life. He looks left and looks right and thinks that he can dominate the world. All right, I love that about him. All right, uh, this summer we were in Vail. We did this uh, adventure park on the top of a mountain, and it was his first time to do like a ropes course deal. It was like five feet high. Uh, he's got the helmet on. He's got the harness on. He's roped in, and he's going through, and he's struggling a little bit with it. And and to such an extent, we're like, uh, mom and dad are like, buddy, you can do it. You can do it. Keep going. Keep going. Uh, and then finally, he's just struggling, he's struggling, and he just says he wants off. And so we get to this halfway mark in the ropes course, and we let him off, and he gets down, and they take the rope off, they undo the harness, and he's not been on the ground for more than three seconds, and he looks away from the five-foot ropes course to the 50-foot adult course, and he says, that one's next, right? <laughs> Some of us get hit on the mat and have no problem getting back up. But for many of us that have moved through adulthood and have been ingrained in the tendency to compare Man, are you crazy? You can't do a five-foot one? You think you're going to do a 50-foot one? You're crazy, right? That's what we've done in life. That's where we've landed ourselves. And for some of us, we need to get back up and resume back in and lean back into what God has called us, believing that he's equipped us, that he's made us, that he loves us, and that we're significant because he cares for us and he came out to redeem us. But we're going to get not just two commands, but the fuel behind those commands that get us moving is the promises that he extends to us right here. Notice what he says next. A, for, a refrain that ought to be familiar through, for you throughout the scriptures. He says, uh, uh, take courage, declares the Lord, and work for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. Verse 5, as for the promise which I made you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more in a little while, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea also in the dry land. I will shake all the nations and they will come with the wealth of all the nations. And I will fill this house, this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. And the latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. He encourages them to get off the mat. He encourages them to resume the work for two reasons, two promises that he extends them. One, I'm with you. That as you look left and as you look right, stop worrying about it because I am with you. Because really what comparison begins to do subtly and ultimately is it begins to question us in two regards. But as we look left and as we look right, thinking about our proficiency, our possessions, our personality, we begin to wonder, is God's provision in our lives enough? When we seem to not stack up, we seem to not measure up, we seem to not cut it, we seem to feel like we're on the outside looking in, suddenly, slowly, we may not recognize it, but the voice that's going on, the question that's being prompted most significantly is this, is God's provision in your life enough? And not just that we end up with a negative self-evaluation, but more significantly, we end up with a view and a belief that maybe God's provision is not enough and maybe he's not good. And that's, a, that's on a good day. On a bad day, we begin to wonder whether God has abandoned us altogether, right? And so God moves to the prophet Haggai back to the nation and say, I am with you. Just like I told you when you left Egypt, I'm still with you. And frankly, that's the refrain that comes throughout the scriptures, right? He says it to the nation of Israel as they leave Egypt. He says it to them again here as they're rebuilding the temple. He says it uh, uh, to us as we think about the season of Advent, that he's with us because he came for us in the form of a baby. That's why we celebrate Advent. That's why we take these few weeks to think about the significance of the fact that he's come to us, that he's with us. So what he says to the disciples and to you and I as he ascends back into heaven, commissioning us to go and make disciples because all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him and he's with us, low, I don't know why we say low, but low to the end of the age, right? That's the refrain we get throughout the scriptures, that he's with us. 
And if he's with us, then we don't have to keep looking left and right. But his voice, as he looks upon us, and his evaluation matters way more than our own self-evaluation based on an external standard as we look left and as we look right. And even more so, what he does secondarily here, this is what we don't get in our lives very often, is that he fast-forwards into future history, and he pulls the curtain back for them to say, look, trust me, not only am I with you now, but I'm going to do something for you in the future that you can't even imagine, which is why your comparison evaluation is so far off, right? It says, all you can see is what's right in front of you, but what I'm going to do with this temple in the future is going to blow away anything that you thought the former temple ever had. In fact, we know from uh, historical commentaries that this very temple will be renovated by Herod, which is where King Jesus will come through, right? And it's going to be that temple in the future that's going to have the wealth of all nations that will come to it, in which all nations will come and respond to a king who will establish a kingdom on earth. The temple that's coming in the future blows away anything they've seen now or anything they had seen in the past. Because chapters are being written of a story that they couldn't have imagined, which is why their evaluation based on an external standard of what they can see right now without faith is so far off. It's so foolish and it's so folly. And yet we put so much weight on that natural human tendency to compare as we look left and as we look right. So what do we do? One, I'd say as we walk through this holiday season, let me encourage you to find those moments in your life where you're making those all or nothing statements. Let me encourage you as you find that natural tendency to look left and to look right, to believe and to trust that it does not lead you to a proper evaluation and so to stop. It's going to lead you to extremes. It's going to lead you to either a constant chase up to pursue people based on a standard that doesn't matter, that you don't question, or pride as you look down at others wondering why they've not made it like you've made it. Either doesn't take you to a good place. And both don't allow you to walk by faith, trusting that God not only is with you, but he's moving human history in ways beyond anything you could see right now in your life. All you can see is limited. So your evaluation is limited and frankly foolish and folly. So how do we trust the Lord? How do we lean back into the Lord and what he's evaluated our lives and what he's called us to, to get back up off the mat and to continue leaning into where he's called us and what he's called us to? For some of you kids, as you return back to school, I'll tell you guys, <laughs> middle school, high school was probably one of the roughest periods for me ever. Because I constantly looked left and I constantly looked right, evaluating who I was based on everyone else around me. And it was torture. <laughs> Let me plead with you, that's not going to take you to a good place. The only voice, the only recommendation, the only assessment of you that matters is what God himself has said, in which you are chosen child which you are gifted and which you are especially uniquely made and wonderfully made. So stop paying attention to the voices as you look left and as you look right and be reminded of the fact that God has created you, he's redeemed you, he's pursued you, and he has a purpose and a plan for you that blows away anything else that you could see right now. So trust that he's pursued you, trust that he's with you, and trust that he's got a plan as he looks down your life, down the road of your life, that these voices won't matter and they don't matter than what he said. For us, a little bit further on in life, thankfully, we don't struggle with this anymore, do we? Ha! <laughs> right? Every single one of us still struggles. We do it all the time, which is why I think God first addressed the leadership of the nation, the oldest in the nation, because they weren't any better at getting past this than the kids were. And every single one of us still does it in whatever walks of life we're at. So I want to encourage you to think through those moments where you're making those all-or-nothing statements as a clue to where you're operating in this comparison tendency 
And then begin to think through, how do you begin to move away from it and have a guard on that internal thought process and heartbeat and where it takes you? To trust that God has called you, that God's led you, that God has a voice and assessment for you, that looking left and right actually misleads you from seeing and hearing what he said for you. Let me pray for us. Father God, we come before you this morning and I thank you that you've given your one and only son for us. Father, I thank you that you would give the unblemished, priceless cost of a lamb for us. That you would leave us not in the darkness, that you would leave us not in guilt, that you'd leave us not in death, but that you would come for us like we often want for someone that we have significant other to come for us. You did it. You did it in a way and you did it in a manner beyond what anyone else could ever pay for us. To once and for all land the question of our value and our status and our significance once and for all. And Lord, as we look left and as we look right to make comparison evaluations of our significance and our status, Lord, I pray that you would help us to resist that temptation that, dis- that misleads and deceives and to trust and to solitarily hear that not only are you with us, but that you've spoken those things. You've answered those questions in ways that no one else ever can and ever will. And allow us to rest in your evaluation of us. Allow your voice to be dominant in our lives and that the other ones could quiet down and we'd have less of a tendency to keep looking left and right for those answers. Lord, we love you. We thank you for these things this morning through your son and by your spirit we pray. Amen. You guys are dismissed. Y'all have a great Sunday. We'll see you guys next week.